week, um, if you were with us, we started our introduction to 1 Peter. Um, if you were not with us last week, we'll try to catch you up as we kind of dig in. Um, our goal is to go through 1 Peter, um, essentially verse by verse, uh, over these five Wednesday nights in the season of Lent. And so we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 1 last week. Um, introduced, this is the Apostle Peter, so very well known, the Apostle Peter. He's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, what we would know as Turkey. And he is focusing on uh, faith under pressure or hope in the midst of suffering. Um, there is persecution that has taken place, and he envisions persecution ramping up even more uh, for these believers in Asia Minor. And so the first thing he did in chapter 1 uh, is to give them an anchor to live through turbulent times. He said, let's be reminded of the eternal salvation we have through the work of Jesus Christ. Again, this is a community that's going to face pressure, uh, persecution, even death. It's likely one of the reasons Peter writes this is that Paul has recently been put to death. And these are, some of these are the churches that Paul worked with. So he's reaching out to reassure them and prepare them uh, for what might be coming. And he wants them to know that death or persecution, even something that's terrible, would never mean final defeat for God's people. He says, remember, uh, you, God has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <laughs> to an unshakable eternal inheritance. Saying, remember that you are going to be misunderstood. Uh, you are living under the rule of a different king than the world. Um, and what's really interesting is if you read through 1 Peter and you think about how do we respond to adversity? How do we respond to pressure? How do we respond to persecution? Um, sometimes in our own flesh, we want to fight that and fight back against it. And instead, Peter seems to have this idea that this gives us the opportunity to actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus, um, who didn't fight those who opposed them, but loved them and even forgave them. And so um, he's inviting them, and it's hard to think through the idea that pressure and persecution and trouble can actually be an opportunity to show forth the generous love of Jesus. Um, we looked at this little chart briefly at the end. You can find this on uh, the Bible Project. This is an infographic summary of First Peter. Um, if you can't read it, that's okay. It's really small print. Um, no worries. Um, I just bring this up to show you can look at there on the left is chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the greeting, verses 3 through 12, uh, the song of praise. So that's what we've looked at previously. We looked at the intro we looked at this uh, song of praise about salvation, the reflection on the salvation they had received, uh, a reminder of our own salvation. And then this entire next section, you can see they trace 1.13 through 2.10. It's going to look at our new identity as the people of God, uh, our new vocation as the people of God, the implications of being saved by the Lord. And he's essentially going to tell them that you are now called to be holy, just as your Lord is holy. 
And you're now part of a new family, the new people of God. And he's going to take all these different rich Old Testament images, and he's going to tell these probably Gentile Christians in Turkey, um, you are part of this family. You are part of this catalog of images. You are part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his people. And so he's going to take these huge Old Testament ideas and images, and he's going to root these Gentile Christians in it to show them what God has done for them in Christ. Um, If you think about the calling of Israel, Israel was called to be holy. Uh, Who knows what being holy is? If I ask you, what's the definition of holy? Set apart. Set apart, yeah. Uh, Set apart. Um, Sometimes I do think we think of holy as like being good. (laughs) And that's true, but for Israel, they were set apart. They were set apart from the nations to be holy, to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests to God. And Peter's going to say that original calling, that vocation, that being set apart um, is now something for you. It's part of our vocation, part of our family, um, not because we've been born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but because we've placed our faith in the Messiah, the Messiah Jesus. Um, And again, it shouldn't surprise us that we see this. Verses 10 and 12 said the prophets of the Old Testament longed to see the salvation that we have received and that was revealed in Christ. This was the plan all along, and now it's come to fruition. But he wants them to know it didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come from scratch. It was promised. And it's firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Um, Scott McKnight, who uh, is one of the guys I'm kind of reading as we go through this study, says the salvation these Christians have enjoyed and for which they earnestly hope is the very salvation that the ancient prophets glimpsed and were seeking in all its details, but never found. Peter's ultimate point is to demonstrate the privilege of enjoying salvation in this time. The fact that we now live uh, on the other side of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ versus waiting for it and longing for it. Um, It's now come, and we can reflect on what has happened. So um, we're going to start with verses uh, 13 through 16. Does anyone want to read those for us? Verses 13 through 16 of chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. All right, so it's a call to action. It's a clear pastoral word here. Um, I don't do this often. Most of our English translations are really good. But there's something lost in translation in verse 13. (laughs) Your version probably says something like, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Um, If you look at your footnote, it actually says, girding up the loins of your mind. This is a clear diagram of what it means to gird up your loins. 
Um, <laughs> this is from the Art of Manliness. Um, and I'm not just doing this for a cheap laugh, <laughs> though it is pretty funny. Um, what in the world does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, there's two things he's drawing on. It's pretty interesting because prepare your minds is this ancient image, gird up the loins of your mind. Um, and this is exactly what it was. You know, you would have a long skirt. And if you needed to move quickly to run or to fight or to do anything like that, you had to go through a process called girding up your loins. Um, every now and then, Deacon Tex almost trips over his dress on Sundays. <laughs> and we've tried to talk to him about girding up his loins. <laughs> but he doesn't. Um, and you can see what it is. You just make like a semi-diaper. <laughs> to run around and that's what I mean if you didn't you would trip right uh, and you would fall over um, and that would not be <laughs> what you would want to see and so on the one hand it's a very visceral image um, that says hey in your present state you are not prepared for what's coming if you don't get ready, you're going to trip and fall and lose this fight. You've got to do something active. You've got to prepare. You've got to get ready for what's coming. And that's as true in our day as it was in their day. Um, here's the other thing that's quite interesting is we're going to see this series of Old Testament images that are playing out. And if you look back in Exodus... And you hear about the promise that God is going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses actually tells them, when it's time to go, gird up your loins. Get your stuff. Don't even wait for the bread to rise because salvation is at hand. And so this is a word not just to be prepared for what the world is doing, but to actually get ready for what it means that God's going to act in your midst. And you need to be ready for it. Uh, Peter wants them to be ready to, to set their hope on what is happening. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright says that in this passage, because um, girding up your loins is fun and funny, be holy as I am holy. Uh, no thanks, I'm not going to make eye contact. <laughs> That's harder, right? He's calling uh, these people to a radically different way of life. To behave in different ways than is natural to them, natural to us, natural to that time. Um, and he says, you've got to actually think about that ahead of time. Because if you just react with what's natural, well, what's going to come out of you is probably not going to be holy. It's probably not going to meet the challenge of this day. He says, no, think it through. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Remind yourself what God has done for you, his great love for you. And if you have pressure, if you have persecution, if you have turbulence and trouble coming, root yourself first in God's care and love for you. And you're probably going to respond better to that than just responding in the natural way. And he's saying you need to live uh, these lives of set-apart holiness. There's a church uh, father called Didymus the Blind. It's a great name, right? Didymus the blind. He says, since God who called us to salvation by the gospel is holy, 
Those who obey his calling must also become holy in all their thoughts and behavior, especially since he who calls us to this also provides the necessary sanctification himself. Now, just this reminder that this isn't grit your teeth and be good or try hard. This is cooperate with the active work of the Holy Spirit in your life, conforming you to the image of Jesus, producing the fruit of the Spirit, getting you ready for what is happening. Um, and again, if you go back to Exodus 12, 11, you'll see this is uh, new language from the Exodus. Get ready for the salvation. Get ready for the freedom. Don't let your old life trip you up because it will. Um, and he says also, it's not necessarily going to be easy, but it's glorious and it's good and it's freeing and it's way better than where you have been, even if that feels comfortable and familiar. Um, and so let's look at some of these uh, Old Testament images that stack up. Um, verses 17 through 19, we start to see Passover images. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's a lot going on in that little short passage. Um, Peter is reminding these folks of a few things. One, uh, God is our Father and God is the judge of all things. Um, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Um, these uh, Gentile Christians are probably going to face some real pressure and persecution from the emperor and his leaders. And there's a reminder, hey, this is not the final authority in the world. God is above him. He is judge of all, and he has called us to live in light of that. Um, gives us a healthy fear, a healthy reverence of God. Uh, not dread or anxiety, um, but it should be healthy to go, oh my gosh, this is person is so much larger and more powerful than me. Um, there's a right estimation of who God is, of his holiness. And there's a reminder that our time here doesn't last forever. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Like, hey, while you're alive, realize this isn't all there is to it. Um, and he's not like an old school Baptist fire and brimstone preacher. He's got a little more nuance to it, but there is some wisdom in those old <laughs> kind of awkward teachings of like, hey, do we know what's going to happen when we die? Uh, once you die, it's kind of too late to think that through. And so Peter wants them to know what is happening. Um, Ambrose of Milan once said, you have been given time on this earth, not eternity. Use the time as those who know that they are setting out from here. Again, that's the, very much in line with girding up your loins. You're going to be leaving here. You're going on a journey. Get ready for what God is doing uh, in your life. And then verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, uh, purchased, uh, bought back. What does it mean to be ransomed? What do you think? When you hear ransom, what comes to mind? What's that? Freed, paid for. You think of like a hostage situation? <laughs> right? What's that? Hosea. Hosea? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. What else do you think of when you hear the term ransomed? 
Money. Money. Yeah, there's a tra- there's a costly transaction. Um, when I was growing up, I lived across from the Hill family, and uh, two boys about my age, and their dad seemed super nice and super tough. And when I grew up, I figured out that Mr. Hill owned a pawn shop in Shambly. Um, and owning a pawn shop made him a little tough because you can't really just own a pawn shop and you know have a wiffle ball bat like it's a pretty serious business and a shambly was not bougie back then (laughs) okay it was some serious business um and i bring that up if you who here has ever put something in at a pawn shop or you know about a pawn shop all right it's it's we're that kind of crowd so um if you really need money and you don't have it you take something that you have you take it to the pawn shop and what do they do? They give you money, they give you a ticket, and hey, if you come back within X amount of days with this amount of money, you can have your stuff back. It's like a old school short-term loan. It can be predatory, <laughs> um, it can be exploitive. But here's the thing that I think is really, the reason I bring that up is if you have gone and put something in a pawn shop and got the money for it and you go off and then you get the money and you come back, and you have your pawn shop ticket, and you actually get your stuff. Um, that's not the same as just going to Walmart and buying something new. Because when you go to a pawn shop, you're buying back your stuff. You're buying it back. You're not buying it for the first time. And the term ransom has the idea that you're being bought back. You're someone created in the image of God. You're someone loved by your creator. And you are in bondage to sin, to death, to the evil one. And through the work of Jesus, God has come to almost a cosmic pawn shop, if you will, and bought you back. Um, You who belong to him have now been returned to his possession. That's in the, the idea of being ransomed. Um, It's not just paid for, it's bought back. Um, And it's the same idea that we see in the Exodus, that God's people, um, the Israelites, they went down to Egypt, right? Um, And what happened? They originally went down to Egypt because they were invited. There's a famine. Y'all come down here and eat. Y'all come down here and live. You're welcome to come and sojourn in our land. And then what happened was they stayed and they grew and they multiplied and a new leader came on the scene. It says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Um, And then he put the people into bondage. He started trying to, you know, thin them out and and control them. And God goes and gets his people back from slavery and brings them into freedom. Um, Don't miss that nuance of what's happening here when it tells us we have been ransomed. Um, But what does he specifically say we're in bondage to? What are we ransomed from? Dysfunctional families. Dysfunctional families, absolutely. What else are we ransomed from here? Feudal ways. Ways that don't produce life. Things that are not good for us. Things done and left undone. If you're the Israelites and you've gone down to Egypt and you've been put under slavery, uh, frankly, you really didn't do anything to deserve that. 
You're not just uh, redeemed and saved and freed from the things you've done. There's a sense in which you're freed from things done to you. Uh, things that maybe you had no control over, but God can work and redeem and free and ransom and buy back. And verse 19 is super interesting in that he says, um, this wasn't just with silver or gold. Um, you know, again, if you have the pawn ticket, what's it cost to get you back? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he's appealing to the blood of Christ and he's drawing this imagery of the Passover lamb. So tell someone in the, in the what, what, who's the, what's the Passover lamb? Paschal lamb, yeah. Lamb they had to sacrifice before they left Egypt, right? Paint the blood. Yeah, so they're in Egypt. You get this, um, you got the plagues going on in Egypt. That's weird, right? The, the plagues are wild. And, you know, those aren't just magic tricks. Those are all of the gods of the Egyptians. There's something that God is doing to prove that is not real. I am powerful over that. Um, and the last thing, and this is kind of terrifying, is that they said, hey, Pharaoh's son is a, is a deity, he's a god. You get this word that, hey, we're going to get rid of the firstborn. But the way to not have that happen is they talk about grab this lamb without blemish or spot. It's slain and its blood uh, is strewn over the doorpost of a home um, to redeem, to protect, so that death passes over that home. He uses that language of this is the Paschal Lamb, Jesus. Um, his blood is shed such that death passes us by. Um, we're protected. We're redeemed within that. And so uh, many in the church have talked about that you need the blood of Jesus, not over the doorpost of your home, but on the doorpost of your heart. Um, and that's what the language they're using here. And again, I just, I geek out that all of this is just retelling the story of the Exodus in light of Jesus. Um, it's going, if you think it was bad to be enslaved to Pharaoh, think about how bad it was to be enslaved to sin and death and the devil. And if you think it was amazing that God acted to redeem his people, then just look at what he's done now in and through Jesus to free you and to buy you back. This is a new exodus. Um, there's a, uh, an English um, leader named the Venerable Bede. You've heard of the Venerable Bede? Any of our medievalists here? I don't know. Yeah. So he actually has this great quote. He says, the greater the price of your redemption, the more respectful to God you ought to be. And not risk offending your Redeemer by falling back into your previous life of wickedness. Pretty good. This is the precious blood of Jesus um, that has redeemed you. Um Tim Keller uh, tells a story in his book, The Reason for God. Anyone read The Reason for God? Um, I'd recommend it. It's a, good, it's a good read. And he talks about a woman in his congregation uh, in New York City. Um, and he was talking about how uh, there was grace that extends uh, from Jesus. <laughs> that grace comes from the cross. And eventually she figured out that that grace can be way more challenging um, than the way we like to do things in terms of earning or effort. Um, this lady was coming to church at his church redeemer and she had never heard a distinction 
between uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and doing what we could to earn our own salvation. She had always heard that God accepts us only if we are good enough. So try really hard and see if you can be saved. And we would say, that's terrible. You shouldn't be taught that. That's not going to do you any good. Um, And she actually thought that the good news of grace was scarier. And he asked why. And and here's what the woman said. She said, "If, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me or use for my good. She understood this idea that grace is incredibly good news, uh, but it can be scary. It can be hard to receive. Um, And in terms of being holy and living into a holy life, we don't do that because we're afraid we haven't earned anything. It should be that we do that out of gratitude for what God has done for us. And again, it's not something we do on our own by gritting our teeth. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our life to begin to produce uh, fruit and to mature us and grow us into the image of Jesus. Look at verses 20 through 21. Um, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Um, And again, there's a lot we could get into there. He's just saying like, man, this was God's plan. Um, That Jesus would uh, redeem us, would ransom us, would buy us back. And so we offer uh, praise to the Lord. And, you know, like Peter, he keeps coming back to this over and over again. I think it's because Peter doesn't get over it. He doesn't get past it. He's not like, okay, thanks, now what? Because we can do that, right? I mean, like if we have a good meal, like we just had a wonderful meal, um, and I know my 10-year-old daughter, she's probably like, cool, like where's the chocolate? Um, That was great, where's the dessert? Like what's next? We can do that. And Peter never gets over the cross, never gets over the resurrection and the salvation he has received. And he's calling them to root themselves in it as well. Um, then if we go to verse 22 through 25, um, this section, uh, again, the, the Old Testament imagery is interesting because he's talking about a promise we see later in the Old Testament um, that God would actually create a new covenant with his people. Um, in the Exodus, he gave the law. They failed. They were idolatrous. It was terrible. He says, hey, I'm going to eventually, by my spirit, write my law on your hearts. So that you can be my new covenant people. So verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, uh, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, and then he's quoting here from Isaiah 40. 
All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news uh, that was preached to you. Um, very, very interesting as you look at this passage, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. He's, he's grabbing images um, that are really interesting. And let me, I'm going to go ahead and read the next three verses of chapter 2 as well, because this kind of plays in. It says, So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Verse 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he talks about the word of the Lord and our hunger for it, the taste that we develop. Um, and he's, he's mixing images here because it's Peter. Come on, give Peter a break. He's going to be mixing things up a little bit here. Um, but it, it's very interesting in that he wants to know, um, what's your palate attuned to spiritually? What do you like to taste? What kind of milk is there? Have you moved past milk up to solid food? Are you growing in that kind of maturity? He's probably quoting unconsciously Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, and when you taste and see that the Lord is good, what happens? Do you want more or less of that? More. He uses this image like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Um, if you have been around an infant who's nursing and they get a taste, man, it's on then. There's not, it's not like, oh, good, I had a taste. That's all I need, is there? It's I'll take as much of that as I can get. <laughs> um, that's the image that Peter's using of, man, the word has come into you. It's done a new work in you, and now you've tasted, and now you have a taste for it. Be hungry for the things of God. Um, see how much you can have. Move from infancy uh, to maturity and start to grow up in the Lord. Um, and so the seed that he talks about, this is kind of switching back in verse 1, talks about the seed and the word of the Lord. I just want to point out really quickly what's interesting. That's kind of what this, this uh, imagery is here. Um, it's just what does Peter mean when he talks about the word of the Lord? If I ask you, what is the word? What would you say? It's being a little tricky here on us. I think in Isaiah 40, when Isaiah is talking about the word of the Lord, it feels like he's talking about either the scriptures um, or the word of the prophet that goes forth. Isaiah. Um, I think when we hear word, just in colloquial, you know, Christian cliche, we just think the Bible, right? Um, and that's okay, because where we get all this from, we go to the word to find this. But he's specifically telling them, not, hey, when you read the gospel of John. He's saying when the gospel was proclaimed to you, and the message of Jesus itself had energy and power and changed your life. That gospel proclamation, again, not that, 
people can actually kind of draw a false distinction between the Bible, God's word, and the preaching of the message of the gospel. Um, those are inseparable. But he's telling them, do you remember when you heard this for the first time? That Jesus loved you. That he made you. That he ransomed you. Do you remember what that tasted like and do you long for it? Um, And I think for each of us, we can kind of think back in our own life. Maybe the time that some of these truths, um, either the first time we heard them. I think some of us grew up and we didn't hear this message. Or the first time we were like, man, I've heard that my whole life, but I've never heard it. And the penny drops. And something happens because the message about Jesus is powerful. It has life. It's a seed that is planted and sprouts and grows forth, hopefully. Because the other thing that can happen, and Jesus talks about this all the time, is the seed can go forth, and what else can happen? Rocky soil. Fall on the street. The birds snatch it. Yeah. My hunch is that Peter's probably a little worried that these believers who are young in their faith and about to face a trial that's probably above their pay grade, um, will the word prove fruitful? Will it have sunk down deep enough? Or will their persecution, will this pressure, will the trouble they're about to face be like the bird who just grabs the seed off the soil and doesn't get planted? That's what Peter's talking about here. Um, this, by the way, is a really cool. This is uh, <laughs> this is a codex of the Gospel of John. Um, that's in Greek, and so that's how we have things like the Gospel of John. Are these original uh, manuscripts? And this is just a picture here um, of the Apostle Paul. This is actually him preaching at um, in Athens at Mars Hill. But it's just this reminder that at some point. Uh, Paul or his followers came to Turkey and proclaimed the message about this Jesus. Um, Now, eventually, thanks be to God, we get like the entire New Testament here, what God has shown to us. And God speaks through it and we learn from it and we proclaim from it. But it has power, doesn't it? In and of itself. Um, Whenever I think about believers in Turkey, um, I think about a friend of mine named Yujay Kabachi. Uh, UJ worked at the church I was at in Texas, Christ Church Plano. He was an intern with us. Uh, and UJ was from Turkey. And uh, early in his life, UJ was, uh, was not born into a Christian family. Um, he was born into a, a very devout Muslim family. And he actually wanted to train to be um, an imam. And his goal was like, basically to go on a mission trip to North America to convert all of us. That was his goal. And he thought, if I'm ever going to talk to these people about things of religion, um, and he knew, he was certain we didn't have any religion. Because for UJ, what he knew of North American culture was what got piped into Turkey from the television. (laughs) And it was not us at our best. But he thought, man, if I'm going to go talk to them about religion... Um, I'm going to do just what you would do. I'm going to go, I guess, get my hands on one of these Bible things and read about it. Um, And so it was interesting. He had uh, seen an ad in the local paper 
that where you could purchase or get a Bible sent to you. Uh, this group would send you a Bible and you could read it. And he ordered this Bible um, and it came and he started reading it slowly, just reading the Gospels. And he said at the time he was having these terrible nightmares. And he was reading the Bible and he was having these nightmares and he had this recurring dream. And in his dream, it was just this woman who was absolutely unconsolable. And she was in this like garden area and she was just screaming out, where is he? Where have you taken him? Where is my Lord? He's like, what in the what's This is the weirdest dream I'm having. And so he's reading through the scriptures. He's reading through the gospels. And he pretty much thinks that Jesus is the most interesting person he's ever read about. He's blown away by his teaching. And eventually he comes to the cross. He's horrified. Then he comes to the resurrection, and you know what comes next. He reads about this woman. She's in a garden. My Lord, where have you taken my Lord? And he said he took the Bible and he threw it out the window. And he got on his knees and he said, Allah, I'm sorry. Why are you tempting me? Why are you testing me? I said it sat there for a while. But it had planted the seed. And it started doing its work. And eventually he grabbed it and kept reading. And then he went back and found the ad. He reached out to uh, the folks who sent him the Bible. They talked to him about the Christian faith. He was baptized. um, And he came to know the Lord. Um, And then sadly, his story gets pretty bad. Um, He had some friends who, um, some some folks kidnapped them. And it it was not good. It was 1 Peter kind of stuff that he was immediately tested by. Um, And I'll just never forget the word of his testimony that it was just reading about Jesus. This person was real and powerful. Jesus met him in supernatural ways and then Jesus welcomed him with the church. It wasn't like everything was magically solved by a dream. It took these Christians introducing him to the faith, baptizing him, helping him grow. He had a church about four hours away. Um, His parents for a while would lock him in his room on Sundays he'd go out the little catwalk and he'd jump down he got hurt a few times he'd take the bus it was an all day affair he'd go in highlight of his week to gather with believers and then he'd kind of take the bus home it was his whole day and actually you know the thing that confused UJ the most (laughs) he was like why don't the people here come to church like, I literally jumped out of my second-story building to gather with believers. And here, <laughs> there's a soccer game or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and he wasn't trying to make us feel guilty. He was literally confused because of his background. Um, I just think of him because UJ is from Turkey. He's from uh, Smyrna, which is one of the uh, churches in Revelation. Um, He's from kind of near this area. And the Lord moved powerfully in his life. Um, He is now, he's an Anglican clergyman. He's serving actually in the Church of England um, right now. He was going back to serve in Turkey, and it's a complex place to serve. Um, And so the Bishop of the Diocese of Europe said, we're going to send you to, I think it was Cambridge, train for ministry. Um, He's there serving. But uh, for him, it was the word. 
that was powerful. It, it went forth. The word of the Lord remains forever. The canticle we read, it goes forth and bears fruit, uh, fruit to eternal life. All right, move a little quicker here. And I realize that's my fault because I'm literally the one talking. <laughs> Not blaming you that we're behind. All right. The next image, and this is kind of where we're going to sit, is um, an incredible image. If I asked you what is, well, I should have done it this way. Okay, ha. <laughs> now you don't know the answer. If I asked you what was the most powerful symbol and icon for Old Testament Israel, what would you say? Because you looked at that, I know. <laughs> no, you would say the temple. Uh, the temple was everything. Um, this is the place where God resided in glory amongst his people. We think about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The temple is God with us, God in the middle of us. This is where worship takes place. This is the focus of their entire uh, life together. What we hear in verses 4 through 8 is that there's a new temple that God has built. Here's how Peter puts it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, which that's incredible. Because he's saying all of you are priests to offer the acceptable worship to God. Who got to do that in the Old Testament? What percentage of the people? One twelfth. One twelfth. One tribe. He says in this new expansive work of salvation, you all are a royal priesthood. You're all offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You are being built up into the very center and focal point of religion as they knew it of their encounter with God as they knew it. And then he comes here in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. So two things happening here. Um, one, it's kind of fun that Peter is geeking out. I'm used to Paul geeking out. Peter takes this language of the new temple with these living stones, and he's then going to talk about Jesus as the cornerstone, and he's going to kind of just play with this image in a few different ways. Um, he's talking about living uh, stones. And what's interesting here, um, these, as you might imagine, this is a, a, a reconstruction of the temple in the first century. Um, you cannot go see that. Because in the year AD 70, the Romans uh, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed uh, that temple. So the, all that's left is the Western Wall. And if you go to Israel today, these are devout Jews gathered by the Western Wall. This is as close to the Holy of Holies as they can get because of what has been torn down. Um, and you can kind of see even here, this is the Dome of the Rocks, how this was the center point even of the city itself. Um, but I really like this passage, just some of the images they're playing with. 
Because you've probably driven by uh, a work site recently. Anyone driven by road work? Um, the Harpers know this. So our, our kids are in a play at Brightstone. My, uh, their son, his cast performed this past weekend. Zoe's performing this weekend. And there's this little road out in Watkinsville. And they have decided to just, I think, mess with everybody. And uh, do tons of work on this road. Um, that we get to do a carpool in the middle of the road work. And there's all just these random piles of gravel and dirt, and it just, it looks like a mess. But apparently, eventually, it's going to be purposeful and it's going to work. Um, there's this idea, kind of what Peter says, like there's this, all these stones just laying there like a construction site, and God is going to do something purposeful with them. And he actually talks about uh, that Jesus is the, the cornerstone. And that's an, it's a fun kind of image he's, he's playing with is imagine if you had all of these building materials and you have used almost all of them and you've got one weird stone you can't figure out where it goes when you start and you're building it and building it and lo and behold you get to the end of what you're building and there's just this funky little shaped thing you've got to put on to finish everything that will bring it all together that's the idea of a capstone um, it's, it's, if you've ever done a puzzle and you have that one piece and it's weird and funky you're like I don't even know where this piece goes and finally it's the last piece that goes in and it finishes everything Peter says that that is, you're being built up into this temple. You're a spiritual house of God, but make no mistake, the thing that's going to put it all together is Jesus, the capstone, the cornerstone. And even that word, there's ambiguity, whether it's the stone that finishes the top or if it's the cornerstone at the bottom, I think it's actually probably both. He talks about the idea that you can actually uh, stumble over this. You can mistake what it actually is. Um, and if I go to a building site, I'm going to trip and stumble. So I, I get that. Um, but these stones are huge. Um, the actual foundation stones used in the temple are, are enormous. Um, Brian and Jan and I were in Israel in November. You go down into these tunnels by the foundation. <laughs> Brian remembers these very, very well. Um, but you go down to these tunnels, and you're just like, man, this thing is enormous. Like, it's, it's actually mind-boggling to think through how they would have even built it in that day and age. Peter's saying that God is doing this incredible building construction project um, in these people's lives. That you are living stones. That's a weird phrase, right? You don't think of stones as living <laughs> says so you're a living part of this that is being built up. Um, and then verse 9, this last little part, is beautiful. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see how he's reminding them who they are and what God has done to prepare them for what's to come? 
He spent this entire time uh, building up how God has worked in their life. What they have received in Jesus. This idea that you have been called out of darkness, ransomed from darkness, into his marvelous light. Um, this, by the way, I took this. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is right by the shrine they have over where probably the Lord was raised from the dead. And they've got this huge dome and this massive light that comes in. It's actually really cool. That little shrine they have, um, that's like this little bitty window. And our Orthodox friends uh, for Easter will just strike this fire in it and pass it right out through the little window. They fill the entire church with light. From darkness to blinding, marvelous light. And um, it, it's beautiful. It just tells us like, even how much more has God redeemed us? Has he brought us into his marvelous light? And I love verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's like, what other, <laughs> what other image can I use? Do you realize that the entire Old Testament... Uh, find his fulfillment in Jesus and now he is working out that salvation in and through you that leads to praise of his name and it's not until now that we finally see some really really clear instruction I'll I'll hit this this is verses 11 through 12 and he's going to start fleshing this out in the weeks to come he says I imagine so so beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So if all this is true, here's the pay dirt. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, they're going to vilify you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, we've said that persecution and pressure, rather than being distractions from the Christian life or things we should not expect, instead, they offer a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus as we follow this way. I'll close with this. Bishop N.T. Wright says all these things, everything we've said so far, all this was spoken before of Israel. Peter believed that all God's promises to Israel had been fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus himself, and that therefore all who belonged to Jesus had now been brought into the people of God, that true temple. The one true God was now living in them. The temple had been rebuilt, not in Jerusalem, but all around the world through God's people.